And this is True True Crime Crime New New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. We're very excited to see you, and we're very excited for this episode. It is a good one. This one is a really solid one. It's awful, and it's sad, and I hope you guys stick around. Um, We're going to get into it pretty soon because it is a lot. We're so glad that you're here, not only for the case we have today, but for our little introduction because we have a major update on a case that we have previously covered. Yes. So we got so many DMs, comments, emails about the update to this case. It is the case we covered on September 8th, The Lady of the Dunes. And if you guys are listening, you probably have heard this as well. It made international news, of course, because it was such a big deal. Liz and I were actually together when the news broke. It was on Halloween. Yes. That they were announcing an update from the FBI. Yes. We got to kind of listen in on the press conference. That was really cool. Yeah. Um, They identified the Lady of the Dunes. After how many years? Almost 50. Almost 50 years. Mm -hmm. This woman, Lady of the Dunes, and she finally has her name back. Her name is Ruth Marie Terry, and she's from Tennessee. Which, when I heard that, I was thinking, that's why it took so long, because Mm -hmm. she wasn't from Massachusetts. She was probably on vacation. So awful. Terrible, terrible stuff. But yeah, the FBI had been cranking away on trying to find her after all these years, and they used this really cool genealogy-type stuff that I don't really understand, but hey, it got the case half solved, so that's really cool. It's awesome. So yeah, we have 50% of the case solved, which is who is Lady of the Dunes? That's our girl, Ruth Marie Terry. Yes. And now they're trying to figure out who murdered her because it was such a brutal murder. Yeah. And they're looking into her husband mostly because they got married just a couple months before her death. Right. Um, His name is Guy Rockwell Moldovan. He was born in 1923, so he is deceased. Wow. Yep. Um, He is deceased, but he is suspected in the deaths of his second wife and her daughter in 1960. Wow. Yeah, so this guy is not a good guy. So this wouldn't be a stretch. No. Nope. And our girl, Lady of the Dunes... She was only 37 when she was killed. Yeah. So it sounds like there was kind of at least a little bit of an age gap between them. But yeah, it'd be cool if, you know, even though he's dead. Yes. It'd be great if we could just solve the case because it's one of Massachusetts' coldest cases. I believe it is the coldest case for Massachusetts. And that's saying a lot. Yeah. Wow. So the fact that she's been identified is amazing and also heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. She was a mother... And, you know, a daughter, a sister, she was loved and she was just brutally attacked. If you guys haven't listened to our episode on the Lady of the Dunes, definitely go back and listen to it. It is not too far from this episode. So head on over to episode 60. It is a good episode. I mean, we cover as deeply as we can. And the fact that we now know she is Ruth Marie Terry, amazing. 
Such a cool thing. Yeah. And that same day, it was a big day for true crime because they made an arrest for the Delphi murders in Indiana. Yes. Um, it's a pretty popular, as in well-known case in America and beyond of the two teenage girls, Abby and Libby, who were murdered in Delphi, Indiana, almost six years ago. And they finally arrested someone. And I learned today, talking to my coworker, that... In Indiana, there is no first degree, second degree, third degree. So they don't know, like we don't know as onlookers if he was arrested in connection to the murder or as the murderer. That's right, because that was another press conference that Liz and I were able to kind of sit in and listen in on um, like a virtual meeting kind of. Right before the Lady of the Dunes. Yeah, they were back to back actually. So it was a big day for true crime and for us. Thank God we were together for that day. That was huge. Yeah. But yeah, I noticed during the press conference, they never addressed the reason he was arrested. They just said murder. Yeah. That's so interesting. Crazy. So big day. Hopefully that's heading in the right direction for these young girls. And again, it's amazing that the Lady of the Dunes... We don't have to call her that anymore. So huge. It's wonderful. Another wonderful thing oh. is all of the bias of coffees that I have to share. Oh, my friends. So we pre-record our episode. So this is over kind of several weeks. Mm-hmm. So if you bought us a coffee or several <laughs> a couple weeks ago and you didn't hear your shout out, here we are. Here we are. Someone who had their name as Bella Boo bought us a record-shattering number of six coffees. It's amazing. I didn't even know you could do more than five. Yeah, that's great. Wow. In the message, it was so funny, I was dying. <laughs> they said they liked competitive niceness. I, so that's why they did six. It's cute. I like it. Because before, we said, wow, five. five. That's a record shot. Six. I love Bella that. Boo topped it with six. I wonder <laughs> if that's my friend Bella, because I call her Bella Boo. Oh. I'll have to ask her. Oh, my God. Cute. <laughs> Leslie O. also bought us two coffees. So nice. We appreciate you. Yes, thank thank you. you. Molly also bought a birthday coffee for Liz. Thanks, Molly. So sweet. (laughs) And a person named someone, they had their name as someone, got us three coffees. Awesome. I think that is so kind. And it's such a clever way to be anonymous while still kind of doing a nice thing. So yeah. yeah. Thank you, someone. Molly, Leslie O, and Bella Boo. Yes, thank you guys. We really appreciate it. And we never ask for anything. So the fact that you guys are doing this out of the kindness of your hearts, much appreciated. So appreciated. Thank you guys. Thank you. As far as today goes, we're going to just jump right into it. This case is tough to listen to. It does involve the murder of children, so please be wary if that is something that is really uncomfortable and hard for you to listen to. That being said, it is a very interesting and intense case Mm -hmm. today. And we do have some stuff from the perspective of the law enforcement, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, So we'll go over all of that as well. And without further ado, today we will be covering Lauren Aquin. All right, let's get started. And first, Katie, would you mind giving the sources? 
Of course. I had both Wikipedia and Murderpedia. Me as well. Always a great day when that happens. Wonderful. As well as law.justia.com, the Republican American Archives, and the New York Times. Great. As aforementioned, I also had Murderpedia and Wikipedia, which are wonderful. I had Law Justia as well, which is one of my favorite resources. Oh, yeah. It's great. Republican Archives, True Crime Discussions blog. I also had another blog called Truth or Scares, and I listened to a podcast called Crime Wives. Cool. Yeah, and they covered this case, and it was very informative. Hell yeah. And I am basing the pronunciation of Aquin off of how she pronounced it on the show. As well as how it looks like it should be pronounced, which that would be great if that was how life worked. Yes. Spell it how you say it. (laughs) Favorite quote of mine from my favorite murder. All right. Let's start. We'll set the scene, and it's an awful scene. Yeah. It's an awful, awful scene. And this takes place July 22nd of 1977 in Prospect, Connecticut. So we're here. This is where we are. On Friday, July 22nd, 1977, 27-year-old Lauren Aquin went to the home of his foster brother. His brother was named Fred Bowden, who lived in, like you said, Liz, Prospect, Connecticut. The two foster brothers had grown up together in a house not far from the one that Fred and his family were living in. Fred was at work at the time at Pratt & Whitney Aircraft in North Haven, but his wife Cheryl, their seven children, and one of their nieces were all at home. Wow. A lot of kids. A lot of kids, which is why this was so upsetting. Yeah. And it was actually the largest mass murder in Connecticut before Sandy Hook. Yeah. Lorne entered the house at about 2.30 a.m. through an unlocked cellar door. Cheryl heard the commotion and woke up. And she went downstairs to the kitchen to find her brother-in-law there. Mm. And when she saw him, she kind of relaxed a little. Mm. She was like, oh, this isn't just an intruder. Right. This is my brother-in-law. Yeah. Hi, Lauren. What are you doing here? He asked her where they kept their tools and if he could borrow some. And then went into the basement as directed because she pointed him in that direction. Sure. Oh, yeah, you can borrow some tools. It's kind of weird at 2.30 in the morning, but... I mean, if you're up late and working on stuff. He said his car was broken or something to that effect. Right. Okay. Asshole. (laughs) So he goes into the basement, grabs some tools, Mm. a tire iron, and or a lug wrench. People kind of get them confused. Yeah. Um, They are different. But nonetheless, he came upstairs and bludgeoned Cheryl in the head with it. Oh my god. Awful. Also, like, what? What? Why? Isn't that awful? Her guard went completely down because right. it was a family member. And they're they're close. Right. He was, Lauren was always at their house and always spending time with the children. So when she realized it wasn't a robber, oh, great, it's Lauren. He's a little quirky, but if he says he needs a wrench at 2 a.m., better to just give it to him, right? Right, like maybe there's an emergency that he needs this tool for. Right. Okay, Awful. benefit of the doubt. Yeah. As he bludgeoned Cheryl, the commotion started to wake up the children. Oh. So he went upstairs yeah. to where they were sleeping. Essentially what ended up happening is that there was 
eight children in the house, which is a lot of children, first of all. And they were kind of scattered around the house. And so what ended up happening, or at least how their bodies were found, was all over the place. So Cheryl was found in the kitchen, and she was the only one in the kitchen. Three children were found in the bedroom to the right of the hall, and two more children were found in the bedroom to the left. There was also the burnt body of another child in the master bedroom and then two more in the bathroom. Awful. So these children included Cheryl's seven children, which were Frederick, who was 12, Sharon Lee, who was 10, Deborah Ann, 9, Paul, who was 8, Roderick, who was 6, Holly Lynn, 5, and Mary Lou, 4. And then Cheryl's niece, Jennifer Santoro, who was six, all dead. So after Lauren had gone upstairs, he did to the children what he had done to Cheryl, bludgeoned them in the head with the tool. Right. He also molested one of the children, 10-year-old Sharon, before killing her. Yeah. And then in his head... Maybe he thought he could get rid of all the evidence by dousing their bodies, the house, and the perimeter of the house in gasoline, and then he lit it on fire and ran. Awful. So, it's a big house yeah. to hold their million and one children. <laughs> of course, it's a big family. They have a big house. Right. They're not wealthy, but they're not poor. Mm-hmm. They have a decent house. Yeah. So, the smell of smoke and the sound of crackling and popping woke up their neighbors in Cedar Hill Drive, and the neighbors are looking outside their windows, running outside, oh my god, what's going on, call 911, call the fire brigade, and so firefighters show up, and by the time they got there, there wasn't a whole lot left of the house, so they're putting out the fire, they're walking through, assessing the damage, and that's when they come across the bodies, like you said, Liz, of the family and where they were located in the various rooms throughout the house. And because this was a neighborhood and it was a family neighborhood, people knew who lived at this location. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty, I don't know if easy is the right word, but fairly straightforward to identify the nine victims, which is, I mean, again, just eight children murdered. It breaks your heart. Awful. And then Imagine being the police officer or the firefighter who's stepping in there, not knowing that they're going to find nine bodies scattered. And then, obviously, they come in, they see the bodies, and they think they all died in the fire. And then it's not until they do autopsies that they realize they did not die. Most of them did not die in the fire. All of them had been bludgeoned Mm -hmm. in the head. And Cheryl had been stabbed as well. And so did one of the kids, Paul. He was stabbed as well. So what's that all about? Yeah. And when the firefighters are going through, they're thinking their initial thought, of course, is, oh, my God, all of these victims are casualties of the fire. Right. They died from smoke inhalation or, you know, as a result of the fire. Yeah. So as firefighters are going around like, oh, there's another body in here. There's another one over here holy shit, this one has their hands bound behind their back. Oh. This is not the result. A fire doesn't bind 
someone's hand. Like, right. holy shit, this is a murder scene. Yes. This is a crime scene. Ugh. Several of the children, as well as Cheryl, had their hands bound behind their backs, and two of the other children, which were the ones that were found in the bathroom, had their feet tied together. So bizarre. But very easily paints a picture this is not just a fire. Indeed. And I was wondering myself, too, is that maybe what tipped off the investigators as well is there was nine people in that home. You would think maybe one of them would have heard and run out screaming or ran to get help if they, you know, if the fire was consuming them, that it's likely that one of them would maybe have gotten out. Mm -hmm. But nine deaths? I don't know. I would have thought that was fishy pretty early on. For sure. You know? Police interviewed over 100 witnesses within 24 hours of the murders. It's pretty, uh... They pretty were cranking. They, yeah, they were bringing them in. They were really... It's impressive. I hate to admit it. going through. Yeah. Fred Bowden and Lauren Aquin were both interviewed. Mm-hmm. Lauren being close to the family and Fred being the husband. Right. And also not there. He's the only surviving member of the family. Suspicious. Exactly. I can see that. Fred's interview, obviously, didn't turn up much besides the fact that he was devastated. Yeah. But they discovered that Lauren was at the house playing with the kids the night before the fire. Yes. A neighbor also confirmed that a man had been seen just sitting in his car in the area the day before the murders. Like, scoping out the place. That's really creepy. Mm -hmm. And awful. So part of this whole thing and how they got a confession and got the details was the process of Lauren talking to the police. And it was a big deal because later he used it to appeal um, his conviction, and that was a big deal. And the written records and the taped records are pretty strong evidence of what actually happened. So... That morning of the fire, that's when they talked to Lauren, and, you know, they said, hey, you're, this is terrible, your brother's whole family died. He's alive, but his kids, his wife, the niece, all dead. They burned down, you know, their house burned down. And so, it started with a trooper named James Blaze, who asked Lauren if he would voluntarily go to the police station and help with the investigation. He was not under arrest, and he was told... He was not under arrest, and it was voluntary. He could leave at any time. And so he was like, okay. So they went back to the Meriden State Police Department. He was read his Miranda rights at 10.30 a.m. He was then questioned about his foster brother's family and what he had done the day before. Um, And then 15 minutes later, a detective by the name of Joseph Zindanowitz, I think that's how you pronounce it, I couldn't tell you, Um, came to speak to Lauren, and he said that he too reminded him of his Miranda rights, and he he was not under arrest, and he could go at any time. Okay? This is very important. I'm looking at Katie very intensely. It's very important. (laughs) Taking notes. (laughs) And so, Joseph Zandanowitz, he finished the questioning, he prepared a a written statement, and asked Lauren to sign it, but Lauren refused. And so, at that point, Lauren was like, Fussy, I guess would be a good word for it. And he was fed up and he asked to go home. He didn't want to hear any more details of the death of his family members. It was awful. And so a trooper named George Hamilla had the honor of escorting Lauren home. He drove him home in a police car. They drove off towards Lauren's home in Waterbury, Connecticut. 
So while George was driving Lorne, you know, buddies in a police car, nothing wrong. He was not under arrest, so this was absolutely his right. The radio kind of ding, ding. George, you there, George? Bring Lorne back to the police station. This was a man named Lieutenant James Shea. He was in charge of this whole investigation at this point. So he had heard Lauren asked to go home, refused to sign that statement. So he said, oh no, oh no, 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 no. He radioed George and he said, bring him back. And so Lauren heard this on the radio because he's in the cop car getting a ride home. And Lauren was like, I'm not going back. I, I do not want to go back. And so George was like, all right. And he kept driving him because he was not under arrest. This was his free will. But then Lieutenant Shea, he radioed again and he said, please, you have to bring Lauren back. Like this is an order. And so George is like, I'm sorry, dude. And he turned around and Lauren was like, oh, fuck. And he literally began to like fight and argue. And then he opened the door while the car was in motion and got out. He was okay. It wasn't going that fast, but he got out of the car and he was like, no, 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 I'm not doing this. And now you're like, oh, he's guilty as fuck. Right? Wow. Yeah. Oh, the dramatics. So theatrical. <laughs> so Lauren then took it upon himself. He was like, I'm just going to walk home, sir. So he started to walk. Route 69, he started to walk. And then not too long after that, Officer Shea and four other officers came driving down. They were like, we'll just go. We'll meet you halfway. And they came and they caught up to him and they got out of their car and they were trying to talk to him. And according to, you know, the witnesses of the police officers and those around, it was a cooperative, calm conversation. And at some point, Lieutenant Shea put his hand on Lauren's shoulder as if to say like, okay, buddy, like, we're going to go now. It wasn't inappropriate. It wasn't um, violent. He was cooperating. Uh, the police officers were cooperating. It was all just, okay, we're just, we're going to go back now. Okay, buddy? Great. All legal, right? He wasn't confronting him. He was saying, like, we're, it's time. This is what's happening. Right, okay. and that's a therapeutic that's a natural thing to do. Yes. Like, oh, just touching somebody's shoulder, touching someone's arm softly. Absolutely. Not grabbing, not hitting, not so, just like, okay, they're there. Come with me, my friend. Yes. Yeah, just a nice, normal touch. It's a very tense situation. Of course. So it was in the middle of the conversation when that things had kind of cooled off. So they ended up going back to the police station and... He did end up complying. He was like, okay, yeah, there's like 86 uh, police officers surrounding me. When they got back to the police station, Shay read him his Miranda rights again. Okay, this is the third time that we have, I've mentioned it, okay? So mm -hmm. three times at least. And then he was questioned in heavy detail by George Hamilla, the one who was driving, and about what he had done the day before and all about, you know, what happened. So it was roughly 5.45 p.m. that night. So the, the fire was that morning. So this is still within the day. Lauren, all of a sudden, in the middle of talking, was like, I want a lawyer. And so they were like, okay, 
you absolutely have the right to a lawyer. Is there someone you want, like specific that you want to call? Do you want us to have the public defense attorney given to you? So George went and reported this to Captain Thomas McDonald, who was now assuming Lieutenant Shea's position. Like they switch shifts and they were like great mcdonald went and talked to lauren for almost an hour they were like okay are you sure you want to get a lawyer this is what's happening and then all of a sudden lauren he said he didn't really want to talk to an attorney he wanted to talk to someone he trusted and he didn't know any public you know defenders and the police were like do you want to call your brother and have him See if he can find you someone. And he was like, no, I have a guy in mind. Okay. So Lauren then named a man named Joel Albert, who happened to be Lauren's psychiatrist when Lauren was in jail at the New Haven jail a few years prior. So he trusted this man. And he was like, I want this guy. And they said, he is not a lawyer. Are you sure you want him? And he said, I am sure. And then they said again, he is not a lawyer. So anything you say to him can and will be used against you because he is not a lawyer. Do you understand? Yes. He was reminded this several times. Oh, God. Yep. It took a little while for Joel Albert to be reached. So while he was traveling down in true 1970s grainy film noir fashion, Captain McDonnell and Lauren got in the police car. I imagine it's raining. And they drove to a restaurant and ate hamburgers in the police car. You know, it was just kind of like a calm down. Like, okay, this is, we're about to have something really big happen. So you want something to eat? Let's kind of gather ourselves, right? Oh, yeah. my God. Did you get any of this in your research? No. Okay, this is fun. This is fun. It's a lot of stuff. So, just to note, Lauren was not restrained. He was not handcuffed during this dinner date that they had. He was completely <laughs> of his own volition, okay? So they got back, and um, they were waiting for Dr. Albert still. So in the meantime, Lauren curled up in an armchair, and he took a nap for three whole hours, okay? He was probably exhausted, and he was not under arrest at that point. He was just, you know, he really should stick around kind of thing. At 11.40 p.m. that night, um, it hadn't even been a whole day since the murders, Dr. Albert arrived, and he joined Lauren and Captain McDonald in the interrogation room, and again, McDonald, he reminded Lauren, Dr. Albert is not a lawyer. Anything you say to him is not stricken from the record. Like, mm -hmm. this is all admissible in court. And Lauren, he understood, and he verbally on the recording understood so then lauren was like he had albert in there he had captain mcdonald everything was like normal and then he got really nervous and fed up and he said i don't want to tell you details i want you to ask me questions and i'll fill in the blanks for you which is bizarre what very bizarre all right weird and then when he said that so he said okay you ask me questions i'll fill in the blanks and they were like great once more, anything you say will be used against you because there is no lawyer present and you've opted out of having a lawyer. And he said, okay. And he gave the details. Wow. And that's how they got the official confession was mm -hmm. that it ended up being seven pages. Holy shit. Of confessing to this awful, awful crime. Isn't that horrifying? Wow. 
Yeah. What an idiot. Yeah, he wasn't the first smartest of wow. bulb in the patch. <laughs> but I just wanted to stress how, and again, obviously I'm not a fan of police officers. And the law sometimes, a lot of the times, can be kind of messed up. Mm -hmm. But this is the standard procedure. Right. So highlighting that he was read his Miranda rights and he was reminded, okay, you can have a lawyer. Oh, you want this person. He's not a lawyer. You know that whatever you say will be used against you. Okay, let's talk about it again. All right, here, one more time. They covered their bases. For sure. And that's important to note. They were doing everything they could to be like, this is by the books because this is a very serious incident. So, Lorne was not the brightest bulb, like you said. Not at all, really. He also kind of had a rough upbringing. I mean, he was in the foster system. That's always rough. That's hard, yep. The neighbors of Lauren's foster family said that he was troubled for many years. Marion Bowden, Lauren and Frederick's foster mom, speculated that maybe a fire that happened in their own home 14 years before the murders could have been what made Lauren so troubled. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Marion took Lauren in when he was nine years old. When you're a foster kid, you already don't have a ton of belongings, and everything that you have on your person is everything you have in the world. Right. So when there was a fire that took down the whole house, Lauren lost everything. Yeah. Everything. Oh. And he actually started stealing really soon after the fire. Okay. Which Marion thinks maybe because he was trying to replace the toys and the clothes and other things that he lost in the fire. Okay, that makes sense. But he was very traumatized by the fire. Wow. Mm-hmm. Marion stated, quote, There's nothing criminal about him, nothing violent. He had no reason to do it. When she was asked if she believed that her foster son had killed her grandchildren, she stated, quote, It's on the radio. They just don't publish things like that unless it's true. We can't believe it. He loved those kids. Oh, So wow. she's... She lost all of her grandkids. Yeah. That's terrible. And one of the sons that she raised Mm -hmm. did it. Yeah. Like, that's awful. To her other son's family. Exactly. That's heartbreaking. It's so awful. But I think it's so interesting that a fire in his own foster home is what kind of set off his behaviors. And then he set that house on fire. Right. Very, yeah. I did not know that. I did not mm-hmm. come across that in my research. So oh, that's yeah. very telling. Oh, for sure. And that's kind of what set him off. Like, by all accounts, he was okay. Yeah. Not a great kid, but... Right. He'd been through some shit. Yeah. God knows what happened before he went to that house at nine. Yeah. That's nine whole years of crucial development. Like, that's... You know, we have no idea what happened there. But it really seems like that fire that took everything from him mm-hmm. was kind of the catalyst for being a troubled teenager and stealing, and then his behavior started escalating. Yeah. But we still don't know why he murdered Cheryl and his foster brother and their children. And I'm not going to try and spoil it for everyone, but to this day, we still do not know, mm-hmm. which is h- hard and awful for 
his foster brother and the whole family. Mm-hmm. It's tragic. It is a very tragic story. It's so sad. I mean, there's speculation as to why, and we'll get into that, but sure. we don't know for sure. Right. After his confession that he made, Lauren was charged with nine counts of murder and one count of arson. So that's what was hanging over his head when he went to trial. So while Lauren was waiting for trial, he was officially committed to a state mental hospital. It was here that the doctor suggested he possibly suffered from either schizophrenia or, quote, a form of epilepsy that could be a danger to himself or others. Which is interesting because epilepsy is seizures. You know, hmm... Huh, that's a little crazy because I don't really know that a seizure, you would have a seizure and then commit murder and then arson and then light the house on fire and then run away and then... Yeah, and then confess and then... Right, because we could even, we could dissect this all day, but when you have an epileptic event or a seizure, you don't really remember a whole lot of things. No. Granted, there's something called, I want to say it's called a postictal state, mm-hmm. where you have your seizure, and then as your brain is kind of frantically trying to get back to where it was, mm-hmm. sometimes people can get violent, sure. or they can act out, but they're not in control of their own actions, they have no idea what's going on. Yes. The likelihood of someone killing one person, especially, like, let alone nine... Nine... In all different rooms, navigating a house. Binding them. Binding them, bludgeoning them, then going around after the fact and lighting their bodies on fire, lighting the house on fire, lighting the perimeter on fire. No. Doesn't no. really seem indicative of a seizure. Not sure who said that, but they should not be in charge of anyone's care. That's just my humble opinion. No, you know, and for, Holy some, shit. for some reason I agree with you. And we don't agree often. But, (laughs) like, maybe it's because it was 1977, but the only way you're going to endanger anyone else with epilepsy is if you're driving or operating heavy machinery and you have a seizure. Right, or you're having a seizure and someone gets too close to you and you hit them in the face with your flailing arm. Right. No. You're not going to (laughs) commit mass murder of your relatives. That's insane. Wow. But in July of 1979, two years later was when the trial actually started. So he was in that state mental hospital for two years, waiting for this to begin. For some reason, and it's not even really surprising, but even though he confessed, he pled not guilty. Which to me is, what's the point? Because you confessed. Right. And it's written down and recorded. Wow. Again, in terms of light bulbs and brightness, <laughs> not the most, unfortunately. Um, but the other thing, too, is that the only proof that they had that Lauren did it was that signed confession. There was no evidence. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that makes things kind of hard, for sure. The Supreme Court of Connecticut said that the murders were, quote, brutal and apparently motiveless. mm there was speculation by the prosecutors that said that Lauren's motive could have come from an accusation made against him. Okay. He was accused of sexually assaulting one of the children. Yes. Prosecutors believe that Cheryl caught him in the act of molesting one of her children 
and he felt like he needed to kill the entire family before charges were brought up against him for sexual assault. Yeah. That's kind of their potential for a motive. Right. During his confession, Lauren said that he might have sexually assaulted 10-year-old Sharon Lee. An autopsy did confirm that there was evidence of a sexual assault. That's awful. Might have. Mm -hmm. Really. I hate that shit. Like, I might have done it. I might not have. You'll never know. Like, I hate that. Psychotic. And Mm -hmm. definitely knows what he's doing. Thousand percent. (laughs) Yeah, that's rough. And then, not even... Like, on top of that, they did go to Lauren's home, and they did find a bag of bloody clothes. It, but it was near his driveway. It wasn't on, like, in his house, like, in a closet. It was near his driveway. Okay, I guess. And then when they asked, the police were like, Hey, buddy, what's, uh, you have anything to do with this bag of bloody clothes? He said that he was in a fight with some men outside a bar earlier that night. Oh, convenient. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And but here's the thing. I don't know how men fight at bars. I don't. <laughs> but I imagine from the movies and the things punching, you know, like kicking, like kneeing in the balls, very like closed fist, knocking you to the ground. So why did Lorne have scratches on his face from like little nails? He of course said that it was you know, due to the fact that he was fighting men, as you, you know, as you do with claws out, this open fist, open palm <laughs> scratching. So they were like, okay, mm, okay, buddy. Like, I'm not really sure. Okay. And right. And to have longer fingernails, like, you know, do what you want to do as long as it's hygienic, do whatever you want to do. I don't really recall men mm-hmm. typically having longer fingernails that are long enough to make decent scratches that break the skin. In the 70s as well? Right. You wouldn't want to be pegged as someone who was perhaps homosexual. Right. If you, you were usually, a manly man. <laughs> right. You would just have that one nail at the end that was long for all the coke you were consuming. <laughs> yes! That's... Listen, nobody's perfect. <laughs> the defense's argument was that the confession had been obtained illegally and that he was denied his rights to an attorney now if you guys remember from minutes 17 to 32 probably (laughs) i talked about how he was reminded of his miranda rights and his right to an attorney at least 400 times so that's already bullshit Mm -hmm. and he did ask to see someone and that someone was not a lawyer or a public defender he was a psychiatrist Lauren, do you understand that you talk to this man? It is not a lawyer. Everything you say will be used against you. Yes. Now ask me questions so I can fill in the blanks. Right. No. He's... there. There's something wrong. Oh, there is? (laughs) Took you 47 minutes to... Just kidding. But it's like how... The defense probably was like grasping at straws. Oh, for sure. Which sucks for them, too, because it's like, that's their job. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really have a lot to work with. On Friday, October 19th, 1979, the jury convicted Lauren on all nine counts of murder and one count of arson after just three days of deliberation. Wow. Yeah. 
He was sentenced to 25 years to life on each of the murder convictions and 20 years for the arson charge. Yes. Yep. So. A lot. He's going away for a long ass time. I can't do math very well, but I'll tell you, 9 times 25 is more than a lifetime. (laughs) And then plus the arson as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. There was several sources that said he had the possibility of parole in 50 to 55 years, which would have meant he could be paroled as early as 2027 because this happened in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't happen. Everyone It didn't happen. Don't worry. He died. <laughs> yeah. He did try an appeal though. Um, in 1982 saying that the court, used his confession, which was hearsay, and that um, it was coerced, and all this bullshit that everyone does. Yeah, they didn't. They were like, go back to bed, Lauren. You know, they did not <laughs> let that slide. That was a sweet dream you had, Lauren. Like, keep dreaming. <laughs> yeah. Go back to bed, yeah. bucko. <laughs> Lauren was serving his time at the McDougal Walker Correctional Institution in Suffield, Connecticut, when he was admitted to the Yukon Health Center in Farmington in June of 2015. He ended up passing away two weeks later at the age of 65 from a severe brain bleed. During those two weeks, he ended up being placed on a ventilator, and probate judge Evelyn Daly had to take over medical decision-making because Lauren hadn't assigned anyone to do it for him. Mm -hmm. When he was put on a ventilator, he didn't, quote, have any family willing or interested in having contact with nor making decisions for him. And listen, he was a very awful human being, but that's sad. That is sad. Wow. I know. He only spent 38 years in prison before he passed away. In those 38 years, he was disciplined eight separate times. (laughs) Jesus. Like, that's a lot. It's a ton. Oh, yeah. So he was acting up in prison. (laughs) Yeah, and... And these aforementioned offenses included assault, possession of drugs, possession of contraband, and even just refusing to provide a specimen. That one I think is so funny because I wonder if that would be refusing to take a drug test. I bet you probably. Mm -hmm. And if he was in possession of drugs. Mm -hmm. Dumb. Just dumb. Also, creating disturbances was another one. Oh! (laughs) I would love to know what the disturbance was that he committed. I know. A fun fact that I love is the first time he was disciplined was two days after he was convicted. Really? That soon? (laughs) Yeah. That's pathetic. (laughs) Yep. Oh, yeah, he's something special. Special is a word. But yes, that is the horrifying, brutal story of Lauren Aquin, who murdered his foster brother's entire family. Awful. Very tragic. If you guys want to talk to us about what you think about this case, whether he did it or not, was he insane, what was the possible motive, definitely let us know. You can reach out to us at our Instagram and Twitter at truecrimene. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at truecrimene at gmail.com. You could also find us on our website, truecrimene.com. We have a handy-dandy submission tool where you could send us cases that you want for us to cover in New England, please. Questions, comments, concerns, nice thoughts, 
on this case or otherwise, just in general, tell us how you're doing. What's up with you lately? Say hey. Yeah. And yeah, if you want a nice shout out, like the one at the top of this episode for Buy Us a Coffee, you can scroll down ever so slightly below our Contact Us section, and you can hit the Thank You button on the Buy Us a Coffee, and you can buy us a coffee, if you so choose. No pressure. That money could go to a lovely organization of your choice. It could go to us. (laughs) It, It could go to us. You just... Do what you want to do, and we love and appreciate you either way, coffee or not, because you're here listening. And that also includes whether or not you give us a rating or a review. Spotify, you can give a star rating, and Apple Podcasts, you can give a star and or a written review. So if you feel as though that is something you want to do, great, we'd love to have you. That is a great way to make our day for free. Uh, oh, yes. Uh-huh. Free. We love... We're all about bargains here at True Crime New England. Hell yeah. And uh, with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.